Hey, it's Sarah. That's what she said is presented by Coors Light, the beer made to chill. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Fantasy Focus Football is back weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Matthew Berry, Field Yates, Stefania Bell, and Mike Clay are here to help you dominate your fantasy league this season. Watch the show on YouTube, Twitter, or the ESPN app, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to draft your team, compete with your friends, and take home the crown by signing up now at ESPN.com slash fantasy football today. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, I'm Greg Proops. My dilemma is that I get up at 5 in the morning and rage tweet. Ooh, the rage tweets at 5 a.m. This is a new one. I, uh, I certainly have rage tweeted in my time, although certain company policies prevent me from really getting myself in too much trouble. Um, an old coworker I used to have back at ESPN 1000 in Chicago used to always say, holster your tweeter. Usually he was uh, talking about athletes or coaches who made the mistake of saying something incredibly stupid on social media and needed to walk it back. Um, but holster your tweeter is, is uh, often a good thing to consider when you've had a few too many alcoholic beverages, uh, when you're really angry about something and you want to, you know, just you're typing with that super loud noise, your hands are coming off the keys really high. Um, in any of those cases, just holster, uh, whether that's until you're more sober or whether that's uh, maybe even save the draft and an hour later come back. And if you're still passionate about sharing that opinion, whatever it may be, go ahead and hit send. But give yourself an hour to cool down from whatever you're reacting to. Maybe the story you read uh, was fake. Maybe uh, you'll get some other context within the next hour, or maybe you'll just decide that it's not going to serve any purpose to share that anger with everyone else. Or an hour later, it is still burning a fire within you and you must get it out and then go ahead and hit send. Um, I remember Google uh, and Gmail had a beta that you could apply to your email. And after certain hours, between certain hours of the day, especially if you were someone who tended to, to go out and, and imbibe a little bit, you would have to answer, I think it was like math problems and riddles in order to open your account and send emails. Uh, I'm glad that I'm not someone who uh, has habits poor enough that I would need to set that up. But I always thought it was a, a good plan for people who have a tendency to engage um, when they're uh, not quite right. Uh, so maybe see if you can figure out if, if Gmail or Google still has that application and, and apply it to your Twitter or uh, uh, maybe, you know, have someone change your password <laughs> overnight so that between the hours of, say, midnight and uh, 9 a.m., you're not allowed to post anything just in case you wake up for those rage tweets. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Greg Proops, comedian and actor. You know him from Whose Line Is It Anyway, which has been on forever, and he has been a mainstay. He also has a podcast called The Smartest Man in the World and a book of the same name. We talked a whole lot about the current moment because he is very passionate about civil unrest in the country, spends a lot of time on his podcast talking about it. And I was sort of curious about being you know, a white straight man and how he ended up uh, feeling so much about uh, equality and, and and caring so much about speaking on behalf of marginalized groups. Um, we also talked about sort of the reckoning in comedy, whether that's uh, the treatment of women or um, the topics and the sort of punching down that people are no longer uh, abiding by why he's so invested in equality um, to the point of making it his content and why he asks comedy clubs to sort of book women alongside his gigs. Um, all sorts of stuff behind the scenes of whose line is it anyway, how the shooting style is really the key to the success, who he liked working with most surprising guest performers and most difficult guest performers to work with, um, what it's like to be a part of Star Wars and the Phantom Menace, what it's like to be a part of uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, and then uh, we also talked about uh, D.L. Hughley um, passing out mid-show. Uh, amidst this pandemic and Chappelle coming up with shows and how to how to do them in, in the midst of all of what's going on. So uh, his own Zoom stand-ups as well. It was a really great conversation, kind of wide-ranging. Hope you guys enjoy it. That's what she said. Super excited to have Greg Proops on the podcast, especially because I love it when the listeners are reaching out and asking for people that they want to hear from and that they love. And Greg is, is one of those folks that you guys have asked for. And 
before we get to the usual, which is, you know, where I kind of walk through uh, your career, I just want to start with the current kind of moment. And this moment feels like it's going to stretch maybe a lot longer than those originally imagined, which is great. Um, But what does it feel like for you as someone who you're talking on your podcast about the civil unrest and race issues, you're tweeting about it, you're making it a part of the content that you're creating, um, but you're a white man and you're coming from a place of, um, you know, privilege, whether people like that particular word or not, um, to be able to look at it from the outside a bit. Uh, What's it been like trying to kind of digest and understand that this maybe feels a little different than the past times we've been through similar discussions? Um, yes, uh, I'm well aware that I, uh, I'm an old white guy and that I'm very privileged. And this one feels quite different than all the other ones because I feel like we've reached a, not just a flashpoint, but a flaming dumpster fire in the road where we're really having to deal all at once with um, inequality, race, and white supremacy. And uh, it gives me hope because I've never seen so many serious things happen in such a short amount of time. It was uh, May 25th when the fell deed was done against George Floyd and we're almost a month away and there's been nothing but constant protest and petitioning politicians and police departments and city councils to change immediately. And you're seeing a lot of immediate change. And uh, the pushback that the federal government's doing is of course completely in character. They have no way of uh, anticipating that on top of their unbelievable um, mendacity and lack of any kind of coherent uh, response to the pandemic, which is treasonous, uh, that on top of that, it would leave everyone at home studying all the time. And so because everyone was at home. Right, captive audience. (laughs) Right. And then uh, when the protest started, it's like, honey, we have nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. So we're more than willing to go out on the street every day and tell you you're a white supremacist because you are. And you've seen his reaction to it. They're, They're cratering the last three weeks. They have no idea what they're doing. They're pulling as many illegal stunts as they can. There's a lot of tough talk and tweeting and whatnot. And uh, they're just doubling down on the original call, which was, um, we think we can turn America into this uh, monotheistic Christian white supremacist state, and it's really not going to happen. I'm curious why you think as a, I'm not going to say older, but a veteran, veteran white white man, uh, veteran white man, why you, um, why you think that you are so invested in this? Because there are certainly people of your ilk that are, that are not, that, that maybe haven't come around to educating themselves or wanting to be invested in I- equality for others. Cause this is something you speak about when it comes to, to women and, 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 you know, people of color. Why do you think Abs- you care? <laughs> Absolutely. I just, uh, I think it's called, um, you know, there's a word in Yiddish called uh, being a mensch and it means being a human being. And a human being um, amplifies the voices of those who can't get to the microphone as easily as I can. Um, I have a platform, however small, and if I didn't use it to uh, um, lift women up, if I didn't use it to lift people of color up, if I didn't use it to talk about inequality and how the white um, supremacist state has basically tried to destroy America for 400 years, um, then I wouldn't be very much of a human being. Yeah, that's sort of how I look at it. It's, Wish it's everybody not that I, felt that way. <laughs> it's well, hard to imagine like, when others don't. I, I don't feel morally superior to other people. I just uh, I can't play it the other way. Part of it is my wife has educated me over the years, and secondly, my father was a terrible person, and he was an awful misogynist, and um, it just always rubbed me the wrong way how mean he was to women and how, what a racist pig he was. Hmm. We'll get back to that. Um, <laughs> I'm curious. Um, right now, there's also a, a, a secondary um, sort of follow up to, to the Me Too moment um, that's happening in comedy. Oh, Not yeah. Just with Chris Delia, but um, people unearthing old clips where people thought it was funny to talk about, uh, you know, making women perform sexual favors to get stand up time at their clubs mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, it's sort of like everyone all at once is like, you know what? this not you know what i'm not gonna like let this sit any longer about a variety of in of of, you know microaggressions or or major aggressions um from your perspective within the comedy world uh how have you seen or have you seen it, it it change over the years in terms of the treatment of female comedians and the interactions between men and women well as you pointed out earlier sarah i'm a veteran um i started in the early 80s yeah so i've been i've seen a thousand million changes happen in comedy. 
when I started, it was uh, funny. And I'm from San Francisco, which is a, you know, super liberal place uh, to make Chinese jo- driver jokes. And right. um, women are women are bitches and women are fat. And my girlfriends are fat. And by and large, I think the young comedians, and by that, I mean, people in their 20s and 30s have dropped a lot of that shit. You know, it's old hat. And it should have been old hat then. Um, as far as the reckoning with a bunch of the sexist comics, it can come soon enough for my taste. I mean, I have things I need to apologize for over my career, material-wise, about uh, things I've said about women, and particularly young celebrity stars. Uh, right. Ten years ago, I piled on uh, Britney Spears and, you know, right. uh, Jessica Simpson as, as hard as anyone. Uh, for humorous content. I don't feel particularly proud of that. Um, however, um, a lot of these guys are, uh, I don't know, they're they are like straight up incel sexist assholes. And I've always hated comedy for that. It's one of the reasons I hate, I love being a stand-up comedian, but I've always hated that that was what stand-up comedy was to so many people. Uh, it, it was difficult to get my cool friends to come to a comedy club because they really thought comedy was a white guy telling fat girl jokes, you know, for like a thousand years. Right. Um, I see it go on and on in different places. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm really glad there's a reckoning with it now for the last two years. I haven't had any men. I've had a few because of, uh, circumstances. I've asked every club I've worked at to have, uh, only women comics on my bill so that I'm the only white guy and I'm not the only comic who's done it. Other comics have done it, but I got just got tired of three white guys being a comedy show. It's it's, it's horrible. America is not three white guys. There's more women than there are men and the the country's hugely uh, not white anymore. And yet you saw comedy clubs resisting with all of their might and I'd say, uh, can I have two women on the show? I would demand it, in fact, because I'm a headliner. And sometimes they go, we can't find any women. <laughs> and you're like, oh, you're not looking very hard. Right. So I've ended up with a few men uh, over the last couple of years, but I've really tried to limit it to none because I want women to be on stage. I want women to be heard. And I'm bored shitless uh, with the um, the macho you know, point of view. Uh, I... I can't take it. Uh, and, and if you're joking about um, having women perform sex acts on you to get on stage, it's that's just disgusting beyond measure. And I don't think it's any different than Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby or anything like that. It really is that level of odious. Right. It's about and power it, dynamics. It's, and it's about it, uh, making someone do things they don't want because of the power you wield over them. And in whatever form that is, it's, it's uh, insidious and also can turn people out of the industry, uh, which is, which is really dangerous for fine women comics. (laughs) How many women quit comedy because um, a guy uh, took his knob out or because a club owner was a sexist asshole or a racist asshole or the radio show was racist or sexist to you? Or, you know, the morning shows you have to go do or the other comics were awful to you. It's I mean, you're you're a woman in uh, the radio industry. It's not just comedy. It's every level of every business. Mm-hmm. But show business is particularly gross in that regard. Yeah. So like like, you, you know, for me, it can't come soon enough. I, I hated. Uh, you know, I've been on Comedy Central off and on over the last hundred years <laughs> and uh some of the shows that like, you know, people would say, Oh, comedy central went downhill. What happened was it got so fractured and their white guy base, the South park man show, all the uh, Daniel Tosh, all that crap. Um, they started to have a, a, a shows with women and black people on, and guess what? They were really popular. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'd love to see it break down. Cause I think that stuff is just, I don't know. It's like have going to a bar and every TV is full of football. Right. <laughs> right. Which, you know, usually I'm cool with, but I get, I get the point. Yeah. No, well, I do think it's interesting for an industry like comedy where it's all about what's next and who's doing it differently. And how do you think outside the box and get creative to be like, Oh, but not jokes that have anything to do with the perspective of being a woman or a black person or a Hispanic person, still just white straight guys. But, but like, what are they doing differently? 
<laughs> it just well, you know, I mean, look it. look at the late night um, uh, landscape. Other than Samantha B, right? Um, it's literally seventeen guys named Jim. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's it's horrible. I mean, I think Seth Meyers does a really good job because he, he puts all the women on his show on and lets them, you know, kind of commandeer the place, which is only right. Um, the idea that uh, only guys named Jim have any perspective on anything is absolutely <laughs> reflective of what's going on at the networks. There was a you great know. statistic, and I'm not going to know it off the top of my head, but it was at our one of our ESPNW Women's Summits that there were more men named Jim and John that were CEOs of companies than all women combined. That's there's no, I'm that certainly. It might true. even just be one of their names, not two. It might be just either Jim or John, but um, all right. So let's get back to the beginning. You were born in Phoenix, but then you were uh, raised in, in a suburb of San Francisco. Um, when you were growing up, was it very clear that you wanted to be a performer and, and make people laugh? Uh, after about eighth grade, once we got to high school, I think I was too short and too intimidated to really do anything until I was about 14 or 15. And then, uh, but I mean, I, I was already writing jokes and putting on stuff in grade school. We, but yeah, by high school, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then it kept changing. It was, I wanted to be an actor. Then I wanted to be a DJ. A DJ was a job <laughs> then. And, uh, uh, and then it just changed when I finally got to stand up comedy because my partner and I, uh, were in junior college and this band came to play at our college at a lunch comedy partner life partner. Yeah, I had a, I had a partner. Uh, uh, I was in a, a, a team in those days, partly out of just fear. Um, Forrest and I uh, performed and we weren't very funny at all, but you know, we were teenagers, so we weren't funny. Um, this, this band came to our school and they did a lunchtime gig and they, we were hanging out with them after we thought they were so old. They were probably like 27. <laughs> and, uh, they said, we have this gig, uh, down in Palo Alto, which is South of where I lived. And, uh, it's like a Wednesday night or whatever, come down and do sets in between our sets. You know, when we take a break, you guys can come on. So we were underage. We were allowed into this bar. We did drugs with them. We smoked, we drank. And the freedom and power of that went right to my head. I was like, I don't even have a college degree. I have no qualifications and I'm being treated like an adult performer mm -hmm. at, at 18. And so that was when it all came together for me. It was like, I don't want to do anything else because, you know, it was like graduating into being a grown up. I never wanted, I didn't enjoy being a kid that much. I wanted to be a grown up, and the comedy gave me that avenue. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So this is very psychotherapy, uh, you know, analysis of me from you mentioning your dad earlier. But do you think that you wanted to grow up in part because of him? Did you have a good relationship with him despite uh, his misogyny or, or was it always sort of a conflict of I want I'm ready to get oh, out of here? It was tempestuous um, without going into gory details. I think everyone has this, uh, whether they like to admit it or not. Some people actually did have happy childhoods where they liked their parents. I did. Uh, That's why I'm asking. Yeah. Cause yeah. I didn't want to grow up. I was like, I'm cool with this. Everything's gravy. Right. <laughs> I, I believe that some people do, but I also believe that most people are lying about that and that they, uh, <laughs> they let their parents have too much sway over their lives. I find in my podcast, I often have to tell people, you don't have to go home for Christmas. You don't have to go home for Thanksgiving. If your parents right. make you feel awful, stay away from them and mm -hmm. don't talk to them. There's no hard and fast rule that says just because you're related to someone that you have to even like them. Right. So, uh, yeah, part of it was that, uh, I was performing in high school and doing plays and stuff. And, um, you know, my dad would say proprietary things like, if I didn't think you're any good, I wouldn't let you do it. And my repost was always, what the f are you going to do to keep me from doing it? You know what I mean? Like, how do you think you have any control over me is a better right. question than, whether you think I'm good or not. Right. Um, 
So, and partly he was, I think, a frustrated performer. I think he would have liked to have been a performer, but his father wouldn't let him do it. Oh. Uh, and so I kind of hated both of them. And uh, I mean, not to get too psycho about it. I, I think every comic has issues. The one thing I'd like to dispel, though, is that all comics are um, are needy and, and uh, were pushed around. Uh, I think you'll find almost all comics were president of their class or wrote the play at their school or were the host of the talent show. Uh, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, yeah, yeah I was a run. They found was their little. spaces despite. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I know a lot of comics who were uh, uh, finished at the head of their class, gave the commencement speech. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we tend to be bullshit. Oh, intelligence is, is a huge yeah. part of the job. That's, that's how people separate themselves from the pack for sure. Right. Um, and be, being articulate. And yeah. I think, it, you know, you're, yeah. that comes earlier for comics. So you didn't finish college. You went to College of San Mateo. You went to San Francisco State, um, took some improv and acting. Um, but what inspired you to just say, I don't know that I need to finish this. I'm going to just go actually do the job. Starting to make money on stage. Um, I was in my early 20s and uh, we were starting to get gigs. And once we got gigs and got booked, then I realized I didn't need any more school because no comedy club was asking to see um, a diploma. They only cared whether you could hold down your time. So I starved for years uh, and had a series of horrible, low-paying, uh, depressing jobs. I worked in a law office uh, as a schmendrick. I, uh, I sold T-shirts in a tchotchke shop and all that jazz. And then at 25, 26, I quit and starved for a few more years. And uh, You quit comedy. Then it, I uh, know I qu- I quit work. Uh, oh, we used other, to call other jobs. Yeah, we used to call them <laughs> uh, a, a, your Joe job, a Joe job, just okay. the job that was holding a place in your life so that yeah. you could subsist and yeah. get in those days and buy cigarettes. You know, uh, um, uh, so I quit though. I just quit those jobs and um, made up my mind I was going to um, be a comic or die trying. And then within a few years, uh, I was working again. Oh, I had a comedy group in San Francisco called Fault Line. That lasted a couple of years. And um, we were pretty successful uh, in the city. And then, uh, yeah, the city. We're so parochial. <laughs> Everybody, from, I know people from New York call it the city, but San Franciscans really do call San Francisco the I city. I mean, it's on the and, Warriors jersey. So you guys get the, you guys right? get the call and on that one. You go around the country and around the world and go, the city. And people are like, what city? And you're like, you know, the city. Ding, ding, crabs. <laughs> you know, cable car, you yeah. know, black mare, all the shit that makes you unhappy. Um, <laughs> gay people everywhere, food, uh, culture. Uh, and of course now douchebag tech. People. Now, now, uh, you know, million dollars for a 300 square foot place. Yeah. Uh, the, the only good thing about the pandemic is rents have come down in San Francisco. Oh, okay. Nice. Uh, um, all right. So yeah. you're, you're, you're working in this improv group and, um, I mean, what's remarkable to me is uh, you started Whose Line Is Anyway, the British version, in it went when, like late 80s? Oh, yeah. My first year was 1989. That's insane because the show is still on. Like, oh, yeah, it is. It, like, we're on that's like your whole season. life. <laughs> I dig this. We're the longest running show on the CW. Wow. Um, I was talking. We're back on the air. In fact, we're on Monday nights now. Right, and that's this, just right, the CW right version, yeah. right? I mean, that's because yeah. it was first in, on, on British television. Then it was on um, ABC. ABC, then ABC Family, then the CW. So you're the longest running show on CW, but you already had like this incredibly long tenure before it even got there. Right. And I was on the second year. So we're on to 30 something years now, um, off and on. I mean, we were on 10 years on British TV and then we were on Comedy Central, I think, for 100 years. And then, like you say, ABC Family even. When we finished on ABC, we had so many shows in the can that we did two more seasons on ABC Family without shooting anything. Wow. And this year, if you can believe it, on the CW, we didn't shoot anything. So these are all shows that are from last year that we did uh, over a year ago. It's but like a pandemic the- dream for uh, show program, like uh, channel programmers. At it this totally point. is. <laughs> I, I was doing, we were doing this little uh, uh, sort of video chat before every episode uh, earlier in the year. Um, the first time they showed them all uh, with Aisha, Tyler, yeah. uh, Ryan Stiles, Colin, Wayne, and, and whoever the other person was, who was me a couple times. And uh, Aisha said that the president of the CW called her and went, well, we just canceled this show. So you guys are officially the longest running show. <laughs> there you go. So 
uh, you know, I've been on the road with Ryan in a group for over 20 years. Uh, I've worked with Drew for off and on for 20 years. Um, it's crazy. I've worked with the British cast for over 30 years. Uh, so, you know, that's so a, that's a family. It, that's a, that's a family. We still don't hate each other. We yeah. That's yeah. impressive. It's like a band that stays together and you're like, are you guys doing this for the money or do you really, can you still be in the same room and not want to murder each other? Yeah. We're too um, purple. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, random aside, when I lived in LA and I was trying to do uh, acting and comedy stuff before my uh, pivot, um, I sent a couple cover letters to a couple gigs and I described myself as the white Aisha Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> Are you enormously I really, tall? I am enormously tall. I also was a uh, Ivy League athlete. Um, oh, really? Yeah, we actually have a lot in common when it comes to stuff like that. I've never met her. I have no idea if I'm actually anything like a white Aisha Tyler, but I remember it was my way of trying to get them to picture this sort of very tall, athletic, sarcastic, uh, smart uh, woman that was going to be showing up. So um, it clearly didn't work, and that's why I, I work at sports now instead. But um, <laughs> let's talk about whose line is it anyway. I, because I did the whole improv conservatory at Second City, I'm a massive improv fan. I was obsessed with whose line is it anyway when it was, especially Comedy Central years when I had like more time to be just engaging uh, with TV and not watching sports 84 hours a day. Um, tell me about the early years and the idea that this thing that is kind of meant for clubs and is about audience interaction could be taken on to TV and, and done in a way that made so many new fans of, of the, of the art form. Well, I think the truth is that um, our producer, uh, Dan Patterson and his partner, Mark Levinson, not Levinson. Um, they would go to the comedy store when uh, Mike Myers uh, came over to London in like 85, he had family in England. Right. And they kind of, he started the comedy store players with all my mates who are still there, uh, Neil Malarkey and Josie Lawrence and whatnot. And uh, they would go down and watch it. And I think that's where they got the idea to steal what people were doing on stage and turn it into a format. So first it was on radio for a year and then it was on telly. And that's when I got on and he's perfected how to shoot it, Sarah, which I think is the secret. We don't just shoot forever and ever, and then edit it down to the three good bits. That, that's we shoot uh, 25, 30 games in a row. If the games don't work or something uh, messes up, we cut and start right over, that, go back to the beginning of it. Every bit is a minute and a half, two minutes, three minutes. Nothing's very long other than the um, greatest hits, which goes on you know, for five, seven minutes or whatever. So he's got dedicated cameras on all of us. There's four cameras on the floor. There's a camera on the host, on Drew R.A. Sher Clive, that stays on them. Mm -hmm. And there's a jib that swings around so you can get the aerial shots. So no matter what's happening, we have a cutaway. And that's how the show works. People go, oh, my God, don't you mess up and stuff. And we're like, yeah, that's not in the show. <laughs> yeah. Those are the outtakes. Yeah. Uh, so it's like a machine. I don't know how to describe it to you. So we'll get up. He'll introduce the show. Then we get up. We play the first game. We don't know what we're going to say. We don't know what they're going to give us. We just know where we're going to stand. So we camera block it, right, mm -hmm. at the beginning. So uh, you and Wayne are going to do this. So me and Wayne get up, go to our marks, and then, boom, we start improvising. We know that it's not going to last forever because the show goes like lightning. So then at the – and this is the part when people come to see it live that's so tedious – so for the first hour and a half, it's hilarious because we're yeah. nonstop getting games, 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 games. We don't do any long form, as you know. Uh, there's no long Shakespeare's or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. So we play the sound effects. We do the, the dating game, uh, party quirks, whatever, props, hats, scenes from a hat, that thing. And then when that's all done, for an hour and a half, we get up and sit down. Now Greg and Wayne get up. Now Ryan and Colin get up. Now oh, Ryan no. and Greg get up. And we just get up and then sit back down so that there's a cutaway of us getting up. So he can edit any game with any other game. So wow. everything fits together like a puzzle. Hmm. And that's why it works on TV. I've done other improv shows on television. I did the Groundling show years ago. Uh, Drew Carey put one on called Improvaganza that we did for the Game Show Network. Uh, we did another one called green screen that had animation and stuff. None of them worked or were as funny as whose line because shooting a lot of stuff and then trying to edit it down does not work as well as 
getting up and doing it. And if it doesn't work, just stop. Right. Well, especially in comedy because of callbacks. I find that even with um, podcasts occasionally, if I, I don't often edit them down, I prefer to just have it be the whole conversation. But every once in a while, I want to edit and be like, oh, but I made that joke and now it doesn't make any sense. Um, right. So it's really hard. It's really hard to do with comedy. Um, what's your favorite game? Because I know you mentioned I, I always love party quirks. Party quirks is a really fun one. Uh, what What's your favorite one to do? Um. Well, on the TV show, uh, I don't know. I used to like film and theater styles because I think I'd give you a little chance to stretch out and yeah. do some different genres and stuff like that. Um, the TV show has never consumed more of my time than one or two days a year for the last 30 years. Uh, the live show that I do with Is that Ryan, really true? You shoot uh -huh. the whole season in a couple days and that's it? Yeah. And so the whole season gets shot in like a week. Wait, so this is what's then really fascinating is this is 30 plus years of your life in terms of how people view and digest you and see you, but it's only a week or so out of each year of those 30 years. Yes. And uh, what uh, when we first started shooting in, in 89, we'd shoot for like two and a half hours and get like one show. Now, uh, because we've been doing it so long and Dan has perfected his method of shooting us. Also, you may notice that the same people are on the show for a hundred years. So he doesn't like a lot of new. Right. And, and which is amazing for us because we're old by TV standards. <laughs> if you, this was a regular TV show, they would have replaced us twice. Right. Well, also you, know, you would have, you know, unfunny somebody would have had to die and somebody would have had to cheat on the other one. And uh, everyone would have graduated high school four times. So, right. So now when we shoot, like for instance, I would go in and shoot, one day they'll get two or three shows out of that yeah. because we do so many games Yeah, and the show's only 22 and a half minutes long with commercials. Do you change clothes and we just don't notice or do you wear this? No, you, you just don't notice. I, I will <laughs> always be in a suit. Uh, yeah. Wayne will always be dressed. Isn't like it nice to be a guy? I'm like no one, they're like, oh, what is, wow, he wore the same thing every show. I never noticed. Meanwhile. No. Well, if you wear a baby suit, you're, you're always. Yeah, I wear, I wear a dress twice in one year. And, oh, you wear the <laughs> same thing again because you don't have any other clothes. Um, okay, so uh, is there is there one of those guys, um, whether it's Ryan, uh, Ryan was always one of my favorites. I think the physicality of his, of his, you know, body was always, <laughs> let the audience, uh, know that Greg is currently doing a Ryan Styles impression. Um, okay, so worked with him a while. Yeah. um, is there one of them that you feel the most, I'm not going to say you like working with the most, that might be too extreme, but like that you've, you notice that the rhythm is always there and it's always some of the best stuff that comes out. Well, Colin's amazing, but working with Ryan is like working with Wayne Gretzky. He just points at the basket and puts it in there. You know? <laughs> like I've really rarely seen him fail and he yeah. has unfailing uh, um, instincts on stage. He has uh, tremendous timing. He's still surprising. The last 20 years I've been on the road with him, the last three or four years, we've done a lot of gigs. We did a hundred gigs last year. Whoa. And we had 75 on the books this year before the Republican Party decided to destroy humanity. And so, and ruin our economy and send everyone into a psychological tailspin for at least the next 10 years. But it's all in the name of white supremacy. So, you know, good times. <laughs> um, we had 75 dates on the books this year. So I work a lot with these guys and um, Ryan is continually, we make each other laugh. And to answer, go back to answer another question that you asked um, my favorite game that we do live is because it's not the TV show. I get to sing Ryan and I take turns singing with Jeff Davis every night. So we're always oh, up singing. and sometimes Ryan and I sing together. Like we don't have to go by the TV rules. So that's my favorite game is singing. At first I was nervous about it. Like, Oh God, what if I fail? And then of course you realize who cares if you fail, just be funny. And so Ryan even though he doesn't get to sing that much on TV, they let him do it a little bit in person. It really doesn't matter what the genre is. He doesn't worry about what the topic is or the genre of song. He just gets up and does it. He's so funny. Yeah. And it's like, there's nothing in improv he can't handle because he doesn't worry about all the things that other improvisers worry about. Like, Oh, I don't know enough about this or I'm not going to nail it. He just gets up and is physically funny and commits to it. And 
that's what I find so impressive. The singing, yeah, that that's an interesting one. I get caught up in some of the TV I do because I am the person who sings all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're not allowed to do that on television. You get your company fine money, which I did once on Around the Horn when I was Freddie Mercury for Halloween and I was supposed to change the words enough to a song and I forgot to no, change them. you sang them. a copyrighted thing. And I sang a copyrighted song. Uh, we anyway, warned about that before every taping of Who's Line for 30 years. I can only imagine. Yeah, I mean, I literally have to be reminded because I'll come up with something hilarious and I'll be like, all oh, bad. And they'll be like, Sarah, you can't sing. Oh, I keep forgetting. Um, so that is fun for the live shows. And I, I thank you for bringing me back around. Uh, you're a professional. Um, because I did interrupt to say, holy shit, you've only done you know a week or two every year of this. Um, but you do spend a lot of time with them because you're doing it um, on the stage show sort of sort of year round, uh, which is um, what are the crowds like? Who, who are sh- who's showing up? Is it is it pretty diverse demo? Is it is it um, a certain age range? What are you looking out at when you do those shows? Uh, it's young and old because um, high school and college kids have grown up on the show. There's an improv group at every school. So they come to the shows. We often get invited to go see the local group while we're there, which of course we never have time to do because we're doing one nighters you know, all around the world. Also, uh, bad improv is the worst thing to watch ever. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> not yeah, that I'm saying I, they're all bad, but I don't really see it. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we get uh, people our age, you know, who are old uh, because <laughs> they remember the show from then. So I would say the demo is young and old alike. Um, That's cool. We've also go everywhere. We've been to every state except, I think, Wyoming and Mississippi and Hawaii. We did Alaska last year. Jeez, before this year got canceled, we were in um, Nova Scotia. Uh, mm. We did Halifax. and Oh, Dave Foley's in our group sometimes, too. If Ryan yeah, is yeah. Or, if Kids Ryan in the hall. Is a gig, uh, Dave will go. Yeah. So I've had a chance to work with Dave. Uh, it, so, yeah, like, you know. South Dakota, North Dakota, Florida. Uh, Jeff Davis and I went to India two years ago and did a couple gigs in India. Wow. Um, it's, yeah, we we get around town. We were supposed to be in, in uh, Canada this week for a week. Um, I mean, my I look at my calendar and I just see all the dates. <laughs> Me too. Oh my gosh, it's just it's so depressing. It's yeah. it's yeah. And, and I had a I had all really good ones that I missed: Santa Barbara, Vancouver, New York. Oh. Napa, Los Angeles. I'm like, it couldn't have been when I had like shitty places to go for work. It had to be all the good ones. Um, I know. I I had a, right when the lockdown happened, uh, I was going to go to New York, then do a gig in Rhode Island with a friend of mine, a Brooklyn comic. We were going to drive out to, I had a theater booked. Mm. I had just done the interviews for it. Then uh, we were going to go to New York, do a podcast in Brooklyn. Then we were going to go to London for two weeks and then Paris. Oh, so, yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. Like, you're like, stinks. couldn't they have canceled? Uh, oh, and last week we were supposed to be in the Bay Area, hmm. which is where I'm from. Yeah. Uh, and do Walnut Creek, which is a lovely city in the East Bay. And uh, then, yeah, never yeah. mind. It's, it's, uh, a never mind. It's, a, it's a bummer. It's a bummer, but really suffering. So this isn't. I know. You know I know. And I, that's that's honestly the key. You have to remind yourself of the things that are going well and maybe like, oh, I'm getting to read more books or walk around my neighborhood. You know, whatever it is, you got to find I, a, a way to spin it. Um, but you are doing stand up. I'm in Chicago. Oh, Chicago. I love. We were yeah. going to go to Chicago too, of course. Yeah. We had gigs um, all over the Midwest. You have been doing shows via Zoom. So describe to me. Zoom standup because I I find um, I've started to become a- adjusted to the monologues on late night TV and I still find Stephen Colbert hilarious. I don't mind that there's dead space, but I've also seen people on social media who are watching for the first time and they're like, "Has anybody been watching this? It's awful. It's so uncomfortable." And I'm like, oh, "I'm used to it by now." Um, so for you, do you have people? If you're doing it on Zoom, are people's mics on so that they can laugh or heckle or otherwise make noise when you make jokes? They are, Sarah. That's exactly oh, how we okay. do it. Uh, these two cats, uh, uh, Ben Glebe and um, Steve Hofstetter, were kind of ahead of the curve. They were already doing um, digital stuff with stand-up before the lockdown. So when the lockdown happened, they sprang into action and formed a thing called the Nowhere Comedy Club. And uh, lots of comedians do it. If you go, if you look up Nowhere Comedy Club on Google, you'll see their calendar. And uh, they have comedy every day, um, and it's via Zoom. The audience leaves their mic on, 
and you can see them too, right? Like, you know, using your grid on Zoom or whatever. So I can see everybody sitting there smoking weed with their dog or whatever. And uh, uh, I just did a stand-up show last Saturday. We just clear out the dining room or the the breakfast nook or whatever it is. Uh, So I have some stuff behind me. I stand up. I have a microphone. I wear little earpieces. I talk into the computer and I riffed an hour of jokes and I get to have other comics open for me so I can throw them a couple bucks, you know, so that we're all trying to keep each other alive here. That's great. And uh, I'm doing my podcast on the 30th uh, at the Nowhere Comedy Club. You can look it up on my website. And that one, I'll be sitting here right in front of this Rex Ray here. Yeah. I'll be doing that one from this table. In your in your leopard jacket, I assume. That's your go-to. Well, sometimes I wear it and sometimes I put a suit on if I'm feeling <laughs> fancy. I try to feel like a human being still. The not getting dressed thing is. It's a lot. Yeah. You got to do it every once in a while. And yeah, not only I, to make I, sure your pants still fit. But yeah. Um, okay. I have a couple of follow-ups on the Nowhere Comedy Club. Number yeah. one. Are there any rules for the attire of the people watching? Because you just described someone smoking weed with their dog, and I immediately pictured a perv who right. doesn't have pants on. Because that's uh, just, you know, men. There's no rules. But I always say when I'm advertising the show, my dress code is I'm going to dress as sharp as possible. And your dress code is um, be advised that I can see you. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, for some people, that's an invitation to the very worst. Uh, for, uh, fortunately, there's uh, this is very much run like a comedy club. There is a house manager. Okay. When you come and put your code in, they let you in. So if there's any untoward behavior okay. or, or heckling or any nonsense, the house manager will uh, cut you off. Okay. <laughs> this brings me to my second follow-up. Um, there is something about being in a public space and sharing a room with people that is inhibiting in a positive way for comedy shows where only the biggest assholes are truly going to heckle and take focus away from the person everybody paid to see. Mm-hmm. That dynamic is very different on a Zoom because people are in their homes and they're comfortable and the judgment is coming from far away in a place unknown to them if people are frustrated. Do you find that people try to insert themselves into the show more often? Not at all. Really? Anything, you must have good fans. I gotta stop hanging out with sports fans. Right? They would all be naked assholes. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's the men who watch sports. They're the ones who want to argue with me over Barry Bonds or <laughs> whether the owners are dicks. Yeah. Um, uh, or whether the owners are, in fact, criminals. And uh, uh, they'll drag you till the end of time. They will die on Billionaire Mountain to defend. <laughs> the and they're doing it right now on MLB, some of them, which is crazy to me. But uh, so, so nobody is, that's, that's impressive. Um, so then the other thing I would ask is because a lot of people who love comedy and improv are themselves aspiring or failed and therefore would be encouraged by the idea that other people watching you can see them. So are they trying to pull focus? Maybe not with heckling, but oh, look at this kind of clever thing that I'm doing over here. I know you can see my Zoom box as well. So look at me. I'm I'm funny over here too. No, that hasn't really happening. They're really respectful, Sarah. And um, if anything, the level of comedy is more lenient. Uh, you can get away with things on Zoom that you really couldn't get away with on stage. Like, Ben pointed out, I think he was doing an interview with Alyssa Milano or something like all of a sudden we're prop comics again in the middle of the show. You know, right. I can all of a sudden it's like, and people laugh their ass off. made an onion fly. If you get on stage, you're a hack. But now we're all prop comics because physical comedy and slapstick still work on a small screen. Yeah. Well, and because it's it's a knowledge of the restrictions of being at home. And so whatever creatively you can do from those things in your space, are it's impressive and funny and unexpected. Um, that reminds me, uh, not not long ago, D.L. Hughley was doing a show in a club, oh, a real club, no masks. Ugh. And he fainted on stage. And the the way they sort of dragged him off, I mean, I think they were doing their best, but it was still sort of like, okay, one person pick up the legs and one person pick up the arms. Have you never witnessed anyone getting carried anywhere? Stop dragging him down the stairs. And then he gets to the hospital for what he presumes to be exhaustion and he actually tests positive for COVID, which I, I'm not surprised. I honestly think most of, many of us, not most of us, many of us probably have had it and have not had an occasion to be tested because we're not showing up to try to play a sport. We're going to the hospital. Um, and so that's why the restrictions are so important because we don't actually know. And I was shocked that there was even a show going on. 
And then I was just to see it on camera. What was your reaction to, to see? I was, I presume you saw the video. I did. I had the same reaction you did, Sarah. One, I was aghast that um, Zanies and Nationals open and that they're having all those people in a room without any masks on. And I've played Zanies in Nashville, you know, several times. I've done at least two weeks there that I can think of. And um, it's a small little room with an upstairs area. And also when the guy went on to help him and let him hit his head on the stage, it was just a shit show. Um, I was appalled by it. And I think I speak for a bunch of comedians, uh, certainly Jen Kirkman, when we say we're not stepping into a comedy club until this is resolved. And that might be two years, you know? I'm not going in, I, the next night after I watched the video, Sarah, I had 15 different performance nightmares that kept waking me up. Oh. All of which were me going into a club, me being tested before I went on stage. I had one of an improv dream where we were gonna be, do a big show, Ryan was in the dream and everything. And they went, oh, you've got it. You know, and it's just like, it's a nightmare to me. We have to adapt and change. The next step is going to be, besides Zoom performing, is going to be, I think, using outdoor venues right. and drive like the Chappelle, the Chappelle one, yeah. Right, and and car parks and uh, uh, any place where there's air, where people can be distanced from one another and wear masks or in their automobile and watch you on stage. That's how it's going to have to go down. In order for me to feel safe, I wouldn't do it another way. I'm not putting anyone's life at risk by shouting into a microphone with no mask on in a room full of people. I can't even, at the supermarket yesterday, People walk around like this, which I love. They they have their mask and then they pull it down like that so that it's only up. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, it has to go over your nose. Yeah. So the supermarket I go to hired a security guard to walk up and down the aisles and to tell grown people to pull their mask up. Yeah. It's sad. It's it's it's, it's pathetic. I um, think the bestest uh, the best um visual for that that I try to show people if they don't understand that is that cartoon someone put with a little penis hanging over the top of the underwear. Right. And I'm like that's not how you wear your underwear and your mask needs to go over your little face penis. So Well, you know, a lot of this is um uh, I'm I like to blame uh 45 for everything because I believe he's responsible for it. It's also the entire GOP. Um the fact that he won't wear a mask, the fact that they've made mask wearing a defiant act of white supremacy that no one's going to tell you what to do. You're a copperhead. Don't tread on me and all that um, is revolting and it's counterintuitive and it speaks to the basis part of our nature as opposed to at what Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature. It speaks of the inconsideration that they have for everyone else in the world and the lack of concern they have for the dead. Um, there's been no memorializing of the dead. There's been no acknowledging that we're up to what, 120,000 people. There hasn't been an all weekend prayer vigil on TV with candles. None of that's happened because they don't want it to. They actually think they have something to run on, which to me is like, you're kidding. There's genocide being committed against um, people of color in this country through COVID. And they're still campaigning like, hey, we're going to rally and everything's going to be great. Right. If like, we just stop testing, joking, right? it'll go You're away. Joking. It's kind of like if you don't get a pregnancy test, the baby never comes. Right. If, if, if the fire department stops acknowledging their fires, the level of fires will go There's down. There's no fires. Um, yeah, it's really, it's very sad, especially hearing some of the European experts who are using the top American epidemiologists to inform what they're doing over there very successfully and then asking aloud why isn't America listening to their own very smart top epidemiologists? Why have they given up? And you look at the lack of a, a flattened curve and you understand it. Um, it's a lot. It's yeah. a lot for people to sort of uh, digest um, all at once in the intersections, like you mentioned, of uh, disproportionately affecting people of color while currently also undergoing these incredible, uh, powerful protests and conversations about race relations in America. Uh, it all it all comes together to a head. Um all right. I'm curious. I have a couple more things for you before I let you go. Um, the Phantom Menace, uh, does that come up a lot? Do people talk to you about being a part of the Star Wars world? Because there are a oh, few absolutely. movies, but like that's one where if you get to be a part of that, that feels like incredible like history to be to be in. I, uh, I'm glad I did it. Um, I'm uh, doing a video game this week where I'm doing the same character. So that's another gift that's kept giving over the years. We shot that thing in like not 1996 when did the movie come out 97 or 98 mm -hmm. it's been a while yeah it's been a while and um uh 99 my, 
my agent in England said to me, I don't think you should take the gig. <laughs> and I said to her, um, uh, English people call a resume a CV, mm-hmm. uh, the curriculum vitae. And uh, I said to her, but it goes at the top of my CV for the rest of my life. Yeah, duh. And, like, uh, the coolest story ever. You should pay them to be in it. <laughs> right? So uh, I did the movie and George directed us. George was on the set. I get to call him George because I met him. Yeah, you guys are BFF. And oh, oh, totally. I called him the other day to borrow a million dollars. And uh, he uh, uh, then I did every subsequent video game, every you know, there's like Lego pod race. Oh yeah. I mean the merch then, side of it and the spinoffs is worth it yeah. alone. And then uh, last two years ago, we did a show called the resistance for Disney channel, which I don't know if it's still on. Uh, and they had pod racing in it before the resistance got too busy fighting the empire. Yeah. So they, they take breaks and pod race. And so they brought me back to do that. And all they did was change the name of my character <laughs> from Fode to Zach or whatever. And, it was the, I went into audition for it and I was like, wait a minute, this is the role I've been doing for 25 years. <laughs> and I auditioned and then I did a bunch of different other voices too, which they wanted me to do like pod race voices. And then I didn't hear anything for like six months. And I was like, did they really give my part to someone else? And then of course they called me and went, no, we want you to do it. We're just yeah. putting it together. That's funny. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that definitely stands out from a resume forever and, and we'll have this, this very interesting little cutout. Um, really quickly. I meant to ask about uh, whose line is it anyway? Um, a couple quick, uh, quick hitters. Uh, who's the most, you've had a ton of uh, guest performers, uh, you know, Rob Gronkowski and Carmen Electra and Hugh Hefner and Tony Hawk and sure. All, Jerry all Springer. Yeah. Just crazy different people. Was there one that was your favorite to work with when they came on? Uh, uh, Ross Matthews and I did one a couple years ago and it was hilarious because the premise was we were having a business meeting at a restaurant and neither of us knows anything about business. So Ross Matthews comes out and goes, I've got some very important paper. And I just got on the floor. It was the blind leading the blind. Yeah. He, he was probably my favorite one. Um, yeah. When they had it on ABC and they started putting the guests on, uh, I was always like, why are they doing this? Because no one watches the show for that. Yeah. They watch it to see Ryan and Colin. For sure. Down. For sure. Uh, so, but it's, you know, it's a fair it's enough fun. question. Yeah. When I, I'll tell you this, Sarah. When I die, they'll not show anything of my podcast, my stand-up, anything I've ever done in my career. When I die, there'll be a clip of um, Richard Simmons and Colin and then me laughing. That <laughs> That'll be it. That'll be it. And maybe, and maybe a clip from Phantom Menace. (laughs) Right. Can I mention one other uh, gig that I've done that I love? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Really quick though. I wanted to ask you. So, so um, I'm wondering if there's um, uh, another guest performer that was surprising. Like you were like, Oh, we're having this person on. And then you were like, Oh my gosh, they're really good at this. They're funny. uh, I love hearing about those. No, no, that's too bad. Well, there's a couple of the CW performers were really game. I mean, you know, uh, so, oh, you, you know, who was funny was a uh, Bill Nye, the science guy. Oh yeah. Cornell guy. That's my he alma was, mater. Uh, he was, a uh, really gung ho. Yeah. And he didn't come on and, you know, I think sometimes they push him into it. They have to do it. And they're like, uh, and then other times it turns out they're really good singers. Right. Uh, or, or we had, I think Lance Bass came on and he did it and he was really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some, some people aren't able to come out of their box that they perform in and other people, cause you know, we're a shark tank. I mean, right. You're not going to take it easy on anyone for, you don't join our group. Cause we play a thousand miles an hour and we're like right. the Harlem Trotters. We bounce past to each other backwards. We don't have to think about it. Yeah. I don't have to think about what Wayne's going to do. Cause I know he's going to do something. And so because we're a tight group, it's hard to just throw someone in and have them lift it up. You know, we have to push them sometimes. Yeah. But Bill Nye, Bill, Bill Nye, if you've ever seen the clip of him dancing to Lizzo on the runway at New York Fashion Week, I think that tells you enough about him, how he's willing to jump into any situation. Uh, so yeah, so what were you, what did you want to tell me about that you said? Uh, uh, I was in the movie Nightmare Before Christmas and we've been oh, doing yeah. it live for the last four or five years. We're live with Danny Elfman sings uh, Jack, uh, uh, Catherine O'Hara sings uh, Sally, and uh, Ken Page sings Oogie Boogie. And we do it with a live orchestra and we did it at the Hollywood Bowl a bunch of times. Last year we did Japan um, and uh, Dublin, Glasgow, and London. 
And then we were going to do it at the Hollywood Bowl again this year, but I just can't yeah, see it. That's such a bummer. And that is the funnest gig I get to do because um, I'm one of the singers. I'm down front and I'm right next to the conductor. So John Macherry, who uh, was one of Leonard Bernstein's protégés, mm. is, our, is our conductor. So when it's my turn to sing, he and then sings it with me. He you sings do. a lot. Yeah. You can't see him. I can't tell you how exhilarating it is to sing with a symphony orchestra. Yeah, that's so cool. I'm not even a trained singer. I'm a bloody comedian. But I love how earlier you called it orchestra. It was very Moira Rose. <laughs> were, it was like you mentioned Catherine O'Hara, and then she just inhabited you briefly. Hello, I'm Moira Rose. Yeah. If you like one as much as I do, <laughs> yeah, exactly. is, uh, oh, uh, getting brilliant. Catherine O'Hara is like heaven on earth because she's a genius. And Danny is the nicest, nicest uh you know, celebrity composer you'll ever meet. He does the scores for thousands of movies. Yeah. But he really, a few years ago, wanted to get back into playing. Because, uh, you know, he's he was in Oingo Bunga for 100 years, and they were on the road for 100 years. But then he stopped. And so it's been, I think my phone's gone off. He, he's, um, he loves performing the show. And, and, and now we got all ambitious last year and did a bunch of different foreign countries. And I thought, oh, that's going to keep going. And we're on a roll oh. and, you know. Because uh, we did Tokyo for a week and it was great. That's so and, cool. Uh, that's I know. So, so, yeah. so if I have to feel sorry for myself in any way, which I try not to, that's the gig I'm, even though I don't make any money off of it, the gig, my money gig is the Who's Live gig, but uh, it was so goddamn much fun to do and the people are so devoted to it because it's like a cult thing, you know? Yeah, people are obsessed. <laughs> And they dress up. Yeah, the cosplay and everything. It's yeah. really cool. Um, Greg, before we let you go, you have to do the thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's your desert island album? You could only have one. Uh, probably a. Uh... Miles Davis, uh, Birth of the Cool, maybe. Okay, good one. Or, or Steely Dan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Persistence. Hmm. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh, golly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, if we're talking about my personal life, I'd rather not. Uh, I've never been on a TV show besides Whose Line. I was on one other TV show called True Jackson uh, that lasted more than one season. Ah. I've been on a bunch of shows that got one season. Yeah. and then That'll happen. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? No, but I've been beat up. <laughs> you never threw punches back? You just took them? Uh, it was a lot of people. Oh. <laughs> wow. That sounds like a story for another. It was more of a bugging than a fist fight. Oh, okay. That's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, uh, well, really? I never, I don't give this one much thought because I really don't want to be anyone else. Uh, right now, I know this is a lightning round and I'm letting you down without it. And I'm supposed to be a good improviser and have an immediate answer. <laughs> I should have said something really, uh, uh, you know, slick, like some rich person or something. I, I don't actually really want to switch lives with anyone else. Is that a bad answer? No, I've gotten it before. It, it fascinates me because for a day, I could think of a million people that I just want to see what it's like. I especially always think it's funny that no one ever picks someone of the opposite sex because I would immediately be a dude. Right. I was just thinking, would I, would I pick the three that came to my mind since you mentioned it, which I was not telling you, were uh, <laughs> Kamala, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi and Beyonce. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I think about that. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Be I, would interesting. Probably, I, would pick, I would pick being a woman, I think, for a day because. Just pick, just yeah, get get a clue on some stuff. Come back to your come back to your everyday life a little more informed. Um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Uh, huh. Again, my, my, uh, embarrassment level is pretty high. I can imagine. Uh, I'm, I've been on stage for a long time 
we're talking about 40 something years now. So never had a, a Fergie moment where you wet your pants or uh, had us had, you know, ate some bad lamb somewhere and need to make right. a break for it. Like, mid show. Something awful happened. Uh, I remember walking off stage in frustration when I was first starting as a standup because I was playing some disco and no one would listen to me. Mm. And then now, of course, I would berate them until, you know, <laughs> I would literally start a fight from the stage. But I remember sulking off. Yeah. And, uh, that was a pretty bad night. But that then happens. Yeah. that which does not kill you makes you stronger. That is true. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Oh, I'd like to be more of a hard worker. I think I could be more diligent. Hmm. That's interesting. You seem like you seem like you got a lot of balls in the air, but maybe uh, maybe you could have more. You never know, I guess. Um, I like drinking and watching TV. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's necessary. You're just curating your future content. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number eight, if you could play commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Um, don't be a dick. <laughs> yep. It's a pretty common one lately. Yeah. It's a scourge amongst us. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, I was on a plane, uh, with my wife going to the world cup in 2006. And when we were, before we landed in Frankfurt, um, a ball of lightning hit the wing and I watched it go like this and come toward us oh. and then hit the wing. And everything went black on the plane, and then went, lights went back on. Oof. And um, that was pretty wild. Yeah. I was pretty ashy when we got off the that plane. That qualifies for sure. And then what made it worse was the pilot didn't come on for about five minutes. Oh, then, no. <laughs> oh, no. He didn't come right on and go, everything's okay. Five minutes later, he came on and he spoke like Henry Kissinger, and he was like, you may have noticed that lightning has hit the plane, and I want to tell you that everything is okay. I was like, that's not the most reassuring. <laughs> yeah, the fact that it took him five minutes to know that things were okay is not very reassuring either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Oh. Uh, 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 kind, loving husband. Kind, loving husband. That's a good one. Very simple, but it's good. Uh, and finally, bonus question. Uh, who should I have on this podcast? Who would be a great person to talk to? Uh, Drew Carey. Drew Carey. That would be an interesting well, one for sure. Aisha. Oh, well, yeah, I should, I should have Aisha on. You should have Aisha on. She's really, she's a right gal. And, uh, you know, I asked her to do, um, I'm, I'm always involved in, um, abortion rights, um, for women, um, uh, Liz Winstead is a good friend of mine, and uh, she's a very interesting person, too. And she runs a thing called AAF, the Abortion Access Front. And I asked Aisha to do a benefit with me for it, and she agreed immediately. So I would say Liz Winstead, too. Yeah. Maybe. She helped invent the Daily Show. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it's always nice when people – Um, well, I remember reading about Liz in the uh, the oral history of the Daily Show, the book. Yeah. Um, I really like when I find out people I work with are good human beings. And yeah. it's very sad when they aren't. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> almost everyone I've worked with is a, is a very nice person. I, I, I've, I've been really fortunate in show business. Not that I haven't met a few. Right. Well, some people are nice, but like when it comes to like, will you give your time to something that doesn't help you? The answers are not always what you're hoping for. But Isn't that wild? Yeah. And, well, I, this pandemic has shown a lot of uh, people's asses to the world, I believe. It's true. Uh, that is okay. true. We've really found out who the horrible ghouls are amongst us. And who are the nice yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that you seem like a nice person and not a ghoul. Uh, and thank you for doing this. It was really nice talking to you. Sarah, it was nice talking to you. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, there are any number of incredibly big, frustrating, terrible things to rant about. But... I don't think I'm allowed to talk about most of them here at the old mouse network. So I'm going to make it simple instead and complain about iPhones having a temperature limit. I know it's not a big deal. Probably never even affected you. You may be someone who has never been in the midst of a conference call or a zoom or a yoga workout on your rooftop when your phone showed temperature, uh, a thermometer on it and said that it was too hot and it was shutting down until it could cool down. Uh, one day if I snap, it's 
it's probably not going to be about this. It doesn't affect me that much, but I happen to be annoyed by it this week because three times, count three times, was I attempting to multitask by being outside in the beautiful sunny weather while uh, doing a Zoom call or doing a yoga class or doing anything on my phone, which is the only way we get to do anything now because we're not allowed to see people or go anywhere. And my phone shut off in the middle of it and gave me that stupid thermometer. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Absolutely nothing, because I didn't talk about or complain about any of the things that are really plaguing me and the world. I only complained about the personal computer that I can carry around in my pocket, the the item that is so advanced that I can at any moment in time look up anything that's ever happened in the history of the world and find it within seconds. Uh, but I guess you can't let it get too hot. The fatal flaw. There, I fixed it. I fixed nothing. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs>